Good morning. My name is Tom, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 2, verses 4 through 8 and verse 15. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky, before any wild plants appeared on the earth and before any field crops grew, because the Lord God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a steam rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Nicole. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 6, 4 through 10. Each person should test their own work and be happy with doing a good job and not compare themselves with others. Each person will have to carry their own load. Those who are taught the word should share all good things with their teacher. Make no mistake, God is not mocked. A person will harvest what they plant. Those who plant only for their own benefit will harvest devastation from their selfishness. But those who plant for the benefit of the Spirit will harvest eternal life from the Spirit. Let's not get tired of doing good, because in time, we will have a harvest if we do not give up. So then, let's work for the good of all whenever we have the opportunity and especially for those in the household of faith. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for the meal. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part and it won't be taken away from her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Thank you that you are a God who is actively involved in every part of our lives. And so we pray as we talk through your scriptures today and we think about work and other things in our lives that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you would have to say to us and that you would, by the work of your Holy Spirit, continue to transform us and our lives into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus. We love you and thank you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. I want to say a special welcome to everyone who's a guest, as well as all of those of you who are watching online. 
My name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is up in Fort Collins today preaching at one of our sister churches, uh, Mills City Church up there, which was started several years ago by Aaron Stern, who was a longtime staff member up at New Life North. Uh, so we're in the middle of a sermon series this summer. This is actually week four in the series. And the series is called Whole Life, a series on integrated spirituality. And what we mean by that is we're talking about the ways in which the gospel of Jesus actually is intended to infiltrate every single area of our life that our, the gospel of Jesus does not simply make a difference in our relationship with God. It makes a huge difference there. But it also should then begin to work itself out in other areas of our life. So we began this series by talking about the ways in which we pray and we read the scriptures. And then we moved last week into talking about how does the gospel impact the way that we work. We're going to be moving on this week talking more about work and then the next couple weeks talking about relationships and rest and play. How does the gospel make a difference in how we relate to one another and the things that we do that are not work? How does the gospel make a difference there? But today we're going to continue this conversation around work, which can be kind of a strange thing to talk about in church. It's not something that we necessarily talk about all of that often in terms of the things that we do with our hands or what we do outside of Sundays. And yet our paid and our unpaid work occupy the vast majority of our waking hours. We're either getting ready for work or we're driving to work, or we're at work, we're on the way home from work, and then when we get home, there's the work of making a meal, there's the work of cleaning up from the meal, and there's the work of mowing the lawn and doing the laundry. Work is a significant part of our lives. In addition to that, it's a really significant way of how we identify ourselves. That when we're in conversations meeting someone, the things that we normally initially share are what our name is, where we live or where we're from, and what we do. What are the things that, we, that occupy our time Monday through Friday or whatever your work shift happens to be. So it's actually a really integral part of our lives and therefore should be an integral part of our conversation about what does this life look like with Jesus? What does our work life look like with him? We began the conversation last week. Pastor Glenn uh, shared with us several thoughts. He said, first of all, when we look at the scriptures, work is a pre-fall call. What we mean by that is that work exists in Genesis 1 and 2. Before rebellion, before we push against the ways of God, there is work in God's good creation, which may not sound like good news to some, but there was work at the very beginning of things. And as we look at the scriptures, actually work is part of our new creation vocation as well. There is work in the new heavens and the new earth, that there is work on the other side of redemption and resurrection. In addition to that, he said that work is actually part of our glory as human beings. It's the way in which we share in the image and likeness of God. So work is how we as people reflect God's wise and loving order into the world. It's the way in which we collaborate with God in his ongoing work to cultivate his world. But we ended that conversation saying, because of the fall, 
because of our rebellion, because of our resistance to God, we now find that work is marked by toil. That we recognize that there's something about work that has gone awry. In fact, if we were to be really honest with one another, most of us probably experience work as a curse rather than a calling. Right? That our primary experience is not like, oh, this is a good pre-fall call kind of thing. Yes! But instead, it's like, oh, really? What happens for a lot of us is that we, enter, we go to school or we enter the workforce, we go to trade school, we do something and we have this idea like, oh, I'm going to do meaningful and significant and impactful work and I'm excited about this. And we, we maybe walk into work with a certain kind of idealism and then we encounter our own versions of thorns and thistles. It may be actually thorns and thistles if you work with the ground, but it may be things like just an endless array of administrative red tape or countless amounts of paperwork that you think, really? Like, why do we need another TPS report for this? What's the purpose of this paperwork? Or we find these policies that we keep running into that keep us from doing the things that we really want to do. And then, of course, there's the biggest problem people. We have coworkers and bosses and customers and all of the folks that we work with. And it seems like they are fully invested in making our work as hard as possible. And if it's not them, then it's us. We encounter our own brokenness, our own limitations, our own finiteness, our own ways of thinking, oh, I'm going to do it like this, or I have this goal, or I'm going to get it done by this time. And then we don't. And so we find ourselves when we talk about work, kind of coming to the end of the work, the work week feeling tired and disappointed. It comes out in all of our language. We have a case of the Mondays. It's like, oh, I really don't want to be here. But on Friday, it's like, thank God it's Friday. Right? We start and end the week just waiting and working for the weekends. And if we're not working for the weekend, then we're planning vigorously for our retirement and praying that we'll come early. That when we think about a good life, we think about a life without work. Oh, that would be so good. That would be so nice if there was just no work. And yet the scriptures describe the good life in the garden as a life with work. So what do we do in the midst of a fallen world to recover that idea? How is it that we think honestly about the toil and the struggle and the difficulties that we face in work, but at the same time recover through the work of Jesus and the the ongoing work of the Spirit in our hearts, how do we recover our kingdom vocation? How do we recover a sense of good work in the midst of a fallen world? This morning, I want to just share four thoughts with you about, I think, some things, some steps that we can take as the people of God to help us reimagine our work, what it means to work as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how the gospel can infiltrate the things that we do. So the very first thought is this, is that we need to connect our work with God's work and his ends. Connect our work with God's work and his ends. Most of us, if we're really honest, are more connected with our work ending than we are with the ends of our work. 
we're more connected with and committed to our work ending than the actual ends of our work. And for a variety of reasons, what's happened as a result of toil and struggle and even societal changes like the Industrial Revolution and other things, we've become increasingly disassociated with what our work produces and more intimately associated with what our work provides us. We become disassociated with what our work produces, disconnected from it, distant from it, and more associated then with what our work produces. And as a result, we value jobs, we value work based on its benefits, based on what it pays, what it provides, how much vacation time there is, how much is gonna be invested in our retirement plan. Do we actually enjoy it along along those ways. So for us, when we think about hoping and praying that somebody gets a good job, and parents think about this with kids, like, oh, I hope my kids grow up and they have a good job. What we typically mean by that is a job that provides something. We're not typically talking about the work itself. We're talking about whether or not that job provides for a particular person, for a particular family, to sustain a way of life, or as a means to obtain something else like honor or fame or prestige or significance or influence. We're thinking about good jobs in that sense. And what happens is that we end up working for ourselves, working for our own ends. That that becomes the goal of our work is in some way self interested. And that doesn't mean that work shouldn't pay. There is a self-interested part of that. I'm not saying at any point in the middle of this that we shouldn't make money by what we do because those are actual realities in the world that we do have to eat and find shelter and clothing and all of those kinds of things. But what happens is, is that we miss the greater ends for a lesser one. So what God intends is for our work to actually further his work toward his ends. In Genesis 1, we see that God creates and commissions humanity to subdue the earth and to have dominion over its creatures. And then in the creation account in Genesis 2, he calls us this. He says, the Lord took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. It's really interesting verbs. To subdue, to have dominion, to farm, to take care of. Those verbs actually all suggest that God's creation is in some way wild, that it's underdeveloped, that it's not finished in some way yet, and that even that it's under some threats to care for it, to protect it, that God's creation needs to be cultivated and cared for, that it needs to be served and protected. In other words, God's creation still needs work. Terence Fretheim in his brilliant book, Creation Untamed, puts it this way. He says, Genesis does not present the creation as a finished product, wrapped up with a big red bow and handed over to the creatures to keep it exactly as originally created. It is not a one-time production. Instead, for the creation to stay to stay just as God originally created it would constitute a failure of divine design. A failure of divine design. For God, from God's perspective, the world needs work 
development and change or what God intends for it. And God enlists human beings and other creatures to that end, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, to work it, to subdue it, to tend to the garden and protect it. From another angle, God did not exhaust the divine creativity in the first week of the world. Isn't that good news? That the divine creativity was not exhausted in one week. But instead, God continues to create and uses creatures in a vocation that involves the becoming of creation. Carrying God's creative work on toward his ends. This is why Genesis 1 begins with a garden, but when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, there's a garden city. That there's a city with a garden in it. It shows the significance of human work in the completion of God's intended design. That he commissions us to further his work toward his ends, to make the world all that he intended it to be. Which is one of the reasons why the fall is so catastrophic. Because instead of continuing God's work, we undid it. Instead of being the people that were called to show the world what God is like, we actually went in and began to destroy the things that he created to be good. But he commissions us and calls us to the work, of com- to work for the common good, the common good of all creation, so that life can flourish. This is his call upon us. This is why Paul says in his letter to the Galatians that whenever we have an opportunity, we should work for the good of all. And whenever we have an opportunity, we should work for the good of all. We should be the kind of people that bring light into the darkness, order out of chaos, function to dysfunction, If we look to do with our work to enhance life and enable fruitfulness and ensure safety, to contribute to beauty and truth and justice and mercy in the world with what we do. So as Christians, we should actually take a vested interest in the end result of our work. Where is this ultimately going to and pointing at? In Genesis 1, God actually, when he finishes his work that first week, he looks at what he did and he says that it is good. He sees the end of his work and he says, this is good. So should we. We should be able to look at the end of our work, where it's pointed to, where it's going toward and say, yes, yes, that is good. That's good. And we give ourselves into that. We have to know and see and remember how the work that we do serves God's purposes and promotes the common good, not simply how it pays the bills. Paying the bills is important, but our work goes way beyond that to the common good and to God's glory. So the first thing we do is we connect our work to God's work and to his ends. Second thing is to realign our work with God's intention. To realign our work with God's intention. Pastor Glenn mentioned this briefly last week, but there's the truth or reality that we all have to kind of look at or stare in the face that every line of work has been bent by sin. Every line of work has been bent by sin. It's been misaligned 
in some way from God's intention. If God intended it to be this, it's been ticked some way off center, moved in some way that misses the intention that God has for it. For some of us, the way that our work has been bent is it's been bent towards simply an obsession with the bottom line. And so the bottom line, profits are used to justify all kinds of evil things. Profits and the bottom line is used to justify poor quality products that are sold at crazy high prices. They're used to justify underpaying employees for the work that they do. They're used to justify dishonest practices. It's like, ah, it doesn't matter. We can get away with this. We can skirt this rule, this law, this tax. We can, we can skirt all that because it's about our bottom line. Or it's been, you know, used to excuse environmental exploitation or other kinds of abuses. Ah, it's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. Profit, profit, profit. And nothing else matters. It's been off, brought offline. For others, our work has been bent toward actually harming us or harming others. That the way in which our work is done or the culture around the work, it's actually in some way creating an environment that's harmful for us or harmful for other people. It's been bent in some way taken off. For others, it's actually a little bit different where the value of your work has been distorted. The value of what you do has been taken and misaligned in some way that what you do has actually been devalued either by ourselves or by others. That your work has been denied the dignity that it actually deserves. We saw this really clearly last year. There was a video that went viral and ended up on a couple of news networks of somebody going through Trader Joe's and they were shopping along and all of a sudden they looked at one of the employees stocking the shelves. They're like, man, that person looks really familiar. And they kind of kept looking and they kept looking and all of a sudden they realized, oh wait, that person was on the Cosby show. It was Elvin, Jeffrey Owens is the actor's name. And so they started taking video of this actor who's now stocking shelves at Trader Joe's. And they did so in such a way as the intention of job shaming him for what he was doing. Oh, look, you were doing this great work. Now you're doing this sort of meaningless, insignificant kind of thing. And it kind of blew up and Jeffrey got a chance to go on a bunch of news networks and actually speak out and say, you know what? There is no difference in the value of these works. That stocking shelves and making sure that groceries are available for people to feed their families, that is good work. And he's pressed against that. And for many of us, we feel that crouching in our own labors. Whether it is the work that we do at home, the work that we do with children, the work we do in a classroom, the work we do on a factory line, the work we do that nobody sees, that somehow it's been devalued in some way. And as Christians, we're called to be the ones that say, no, no, no. See how that job points to God's ends? You see how that furthers God's work? That's good. And there's dignity and worth in those things. So the question we have to ask as Christians, if every single line of work 
has in some way been pushed off center by sin, then how is it that God might use us to change those things? How might he use us in the field he calls us into to bring change to that? What would it look like if your work valued integrity and equality and creativity and justice and mercy as much, if not more, than profitability? What would it look like? What would it look like if you treated your work the way that God treats it? What if you saw what you do the way that God sees it? What if you treated your work and yourself with dignity? What if you treated your employees and those that work for you with dignity for the work that they do? What would that look like? How would that begin to change things? What could happen? So the first thing we do is we connect our work to God's work and to his ends. The second thing, we look at the ways in which our work line, our line of work, our industries have been bent in some way, and we ask the Spirit to help us to be the kind of people that work to realign them with God's intentions. The third thing is that we do our work for God, and we do it well. We do our work for God, and we do it well. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul is in the middle of uh, a section on household codes, just talking about how Christians live in a new way in an old world, recognize that there's still systems and structures that are in place that God intends to shape and change and get rid of, and how are those being reshaped by the fact that we ourselves have been reshaped by the Spirit. So in the middle of the household codes, there's a section talking about masters and slaves. And what Paul is doing in the middle is actually setting off a time bomb that will lead to the end of that kind of institution. But in the middle of it, he says something that is actually applicable to us, I think, when it comes to work. When we think about our job, when we think about our labors, and he says this, he says to masters, he says, be, or sorry, to, uh, to slaves, he says, whatever you do, do it from the heart for the Lord and not for people. Do it from the heart for the Lord. That there's a sense sometimes that when we think about our work, we're doing it for ourselves or we're doing it to please somebody else. But here he's saying, no, this work, what would it look like if you did it for the Lord? How would that change and transform it? Later on, he says to masters, he says, be just and fair to your slaves, knowing that you yourselves have a master in heaven. Then what would it look like for you to rethink all that you're doing in light of Jesus? And eventually people got the idea of what Paul was trying to say. But what would it look like if we went about our work and maybe if our work is supervising other people, what it would look like if we did that for the Lord as a way that put his character on display, his name, gave his name recognition. See, when Paul's talking here, he says that our work is actually worship. That our work is worship. It's something that can be done for the Lord, that when we're going about these tasks that seem to be so mundane or so mind-bogglingly frustrated yeah, or so toilsome, that that actually can be an act of worship, 
to continue to be faithful and to do good work in the middle of that. And so if we're doing our work for the Lord, then we should do it well. That that should be a part of what it means to be Christians at work, is that our work should be done well. In her brilliant essay entitled, Why Work, it's in a book called Letters to a Diminished Church, the 20th century British theologian Dorothy Sayers defined work this way. She said, the only Christian work is good work well done. It's so simple and so brilliant. The only Christian work is good work, work that connects with God's work and his ends and is well done. That's done in such a way that actually honors the work that's being done and the one who has given it to us. It's good work that's well done. The writer of Ecclesiastes, for all of his struggle with work and trying to figure out, ah, why is it all like this? He at some point comes to various conclusions. He says, okay, so whatever you're capable of doing, just do it with all your mights. Give your everything to it. So we should work hard. We should do our work well with excellence. That we should be looking at our work and saying, okay, how can we make this better? How can we do it well? How can we find ways to fix this problem or that problem and be the kind of industrious and creative people that are working hard at the places that we are at work? Never being accused of sloth or laziness, but actually people looking and saying, whoa, Where is that coming from? Why are you working that way? Don't you know, like, you're not going to get paid more if you work hard? Yeah, 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 I get that. But I'm working for other reasons than just a paycheck. Well, don't you know that there's no opportunity, you know, for here, for you, like advancement and growth and future? Yeah, 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 I get that. But I'm still working because my work is an act of worship. So I want to do it as well as I possibly can. I want to work with excellence and fruitfulness and faithfulness and honesty and integrity. I want to be the person who works in that way because that is the way that I see my father working. He does good work and he does it well. And so as his kid, I want to too. So the first thing is we reconnect our work with God's work and God's ends and we realign our line of work with his intentions. And then we do our work for him. And because we're doing it for him, we do it well. But in the middle of this, there is some danger. And so the last thing we have to keep in mind is this, is to not let our duty distract from our delights. We cannot let our duty, the things that we're doing for God, distract from our delights in God. We're going to talk about this more in a couple weeks when we talk about rest and we talk about play and talking about the spaces and the boundaries that we place on our paid and our unpaid work. But I felt like it's important to talk about this a little bit today that we cannot in the midst of this, even in hard work, even in connecting with all these things, to not let our duty distract us from our delight. Our gospel reading today was that famous story about Mary and Martha. And I want to apologize to everybody in the room who's been beat up by that story in some way. 
right? If there's a story in the New Testament that's been misused and misapplied and made people to feel sort of like guilty and shamed, this would be one of like go-to passages to feel that, especially if your name's Martha uh, and you've had to just like face that in some capacity. Really, this story is actually about Jesus receiving Mary as a disciple. The primary sort of point of the story is that Mary has crossed a social boundary, that she is sitting at Jesus' feet, which is what someone did who was a student of a teacher in order to learn to do what they did. So Mary is placing herself at the feet of Jesus in order to learn to do what Jesus did, which meant teach and preach and heal and do those things. Which in that world, she was crossing a boundary. That it was typically, that was the space in that time that was reserved for males and Jesus is saying no more. Mary's crossing this social boundary. She's sitting at Jesus' feet so she might be with him to learn how to do what it is that he does. But in the middle of this, it does highlight in Jesus' interactions with Martha that work, good, faithful, dutiful work. Martha is doing a good thing. She's offering hospitality. She is doing a good and right work. Good work can distract us. Good work that's even done for God, for Jesus, can distract us from delighting in him. It can actually be something that pushes us away from his presence because we can become so focused on this that we lose sight of him. Our work should actually arise from our devotion. It should arise out of our discipleship. It's a reminder for us that we are not working for God's love, but working from it. If we find ourselves in that place, and we feel like we are doing work to sort of earn God's approval, we're doing it in some way that says, no, this all has to get done before I can attend to him in prayer and in worship and in study, that, that this becomes the most important thing rather than our work flowing out of our love from him. The love that we've received becomes the love that we now give in our work. That's the way it's intended to go, that the love that we receive from God becomes all that we need to go into those places to, out of the overflow of his love, pour that in to our work as an act of worship. But it can just be something that we get so consumed here that we no longer delight in him. And so we come here on Sundays, and this is a day for many of us where work has stopped where we might have some unpaid work to do when we get home, but for many, work is sort of stopped for the day. And we begin the day with delights. We begin the week with delights. The Sunday is the first day of the week that we come before we go into the Monday through Friday, we come to delight in him, to remember his love for us that we might then go into our workplaces 
and not work for his love, but work from it. Work from the place of knowing that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God and that we go into work as an act of worship, as a way of expressing his love back to him and to others. And we're reminded of that as we come to the table and delight in Jesus' work, the work that he's done to reconcile us to himself.